Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Messenger members, and they're supposed to be like China friendly, but um, like I know Whitney Webb and James Corbett have all cited this thing as proof that China has their own Davos, yada yada. But they it's can't even get into China. Like they've been trying to do a conference on China in China, yeah, for like years. They, yeah, they can't they, get. They're it. not allowed in. They have to do all their stuff in Singapore. Right. So it's like <laughs> we're pro China, broadcasting live from Singapore, and exactly. we're live, folks. We're live. <laughs> it is the one and only Matthew Eric. Great game. If you haven't done so already, get over to risingtidefoundation.net, the risingtidefoundation.net. Get the book. Get Matthew's latest books. Uh, they're there for you to consume and enjoy to understand the framework of where we are today globally. And also check out CanadianPatriot.org. CanadianPatriot.org. Support Matthew at his Substack. The links will all be in the description box. With that being said, Matthew, what's going on, buddy? How are you? Lots. Lots been going on. Doing good. Nice to see you guys once again. Hey, CJ. Yes. Um, yeah, there is there is so much happening, guys. As you all know, I know, I, know I follow Rogue News as well, and, and I listen to you guys every day. So um, I think the thing that I really want to zero in on today is this uh, this massive rupture, which obviously everyone is thinking about, of the, the two systems that are splitting apart, right? Yeah. One is viable. One is provably demonstrably in, align- demonstrably in alignment with science with the needs of humankind the other one is an abomination of nature which should have gone extinct with the with i mean the collapse of the roman empire it didn't um so i mean there's a a little segment that somebody just sent me on telegram and i download it um i'm just gonna do a little screen share here of putin saying a few words oops um how do i do a screen share in this platform it's uh right below you see uh mute oh there it's is middle button camera this is just yeah 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 okay i got it Hopefully. all right so here's putin uh this is i think yesterday announcing the fabric of the new financial system that is quickly being brought online for obvious reasons oh uh, yes hold on So yeah, I, that is like a good jump on point because he, yeah. he says in very few words something very big, you know, basically just calling out the simple fact that the U.S. and, e- and the EU have effectively defaulted on their debts, their debt Correct. obligations. They've, they've lost their credibility. They've lost their credit in the eyes of the international community. The, the, the basis upon which the entire fabric of our, 
our neoliberal economic order has been based since 1945 has been the U.S. dollar. Everyone has to have reserves. Right. Now, I mean, it's been clear. It should have been clear already when they started confiscating uh, Venezuelan, Afghanistan, Iranian uh, reserves and assets. However, this is the biggest one yet. I mean, the, the fact, I mean, been what, $300 billion of reserves immediately, but uh, other forms of illegitimate sanctions um, have just proven that the U.S. and the EU as a whole just are not honorable partners, and this is not a viable foundation upon which a, a, an economic system can be built. However, what can work is the real economy. So having um, a transition towards metrics that are based upon reality, whereas the U.S. dollar has been increasingly detached, it once used to be based back in the 1950s, 60s, on measurable industri industrial production standards. You could, you could see if there was more money circulating that there was a sort of analog in the real economy to the increased powers of productivity. And you could say, okay, thus it's a legitimate increase of anti-inflationary um, capital. Since 1971, that's no longer the case. The, U the, the monetary system has been allowed to accumulate and grow hyperbolically. This has resulted in a giant speculative bubble, the king of all bubbles, which is now right to blow. It is blowing. It, is, it has blown, I guess you could say, even as, as yeah. far back as 2008, it blew. Uh, and now what we have is a race over what the new framework will be, what will be the new system. Um, so to flesh this out, Sergei Glaziev um, is a figure who people need to come to know a lot more. He's, good, he's been an important player behind the scenes as an advisor to Putin. He was recently made the, uh, the Minister of Eurasian uh, Economic Integration. Um, and he's the, the brains. He's sort of the smartest guy in the room in Russia. There's a lot of traitors in Russia. There are patriots, but there's confused patriots. This guy is a patriot and he's not confused. He's been around for a long time. He knows the nature of the game. He knows the beast. And he gave this interview that I, I picked out about seven small selections from to just read with you guys. We talk about each one as, as we read them, um, which gets a little bit, it, it puts some meat on the bones of this new system that is being brought online. He's also, keep in mind, the brains behind the uh, the the Eurasian Economic Union yep. China uh, Commission now to create a new alternative financial architecture with a new currency that has to be fleshed out. Yeah, he goes into a little bit of detail, a lot of de detail actually in this speech or in this uh, interview, um, which is very useful. So let me just get another sc uh, screen share, and uh, we'll do that. Okay, for some reason it's not reading window. Shouldn't it offer uh, applications options? Uh, entire screen window Chrome tab. No. Uh, no, oh. it doesn't have apps. Okay. Uh, no, it does yeah. do. Go to window and you should see the applications displayed. Well, there, my PowerPoint is open right now, but it's not showing up on the, uh, the screen share option. So oh, that's um, that sucks. All right. Okay, I guess I could just read them. Um, yeah, I'll just open up, and uh, nobody will read. Or blow up your, uh, go to entire screen, and then blow up your PowerPoint. Go to the entire screen? Yeah, go to a screen, whatever screen you're trying to uh, broadcast. Click uh, yeah. entire screen, but then, you know, make sure that you're... you're uh... Aha! I think I got it. Yeah, you got it? Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. There oh, you, you go. It. I don't know what you did, but this is genius. There you is. guys see that? Yes, I will make it bigger. Okay, cool. There. 
So that's uh, the dynamic trio, uh, Lavrov's in the background there, and that's uh, Glaziev, Putin. Glaziev, up until now, um, has been kept for various reasons out of the type of power that he needs to have in the banking community. Um, as a little bit of background, um, last week we spoke a little bit of Anatoly Chubai as one of the king traders of Russia who has recently jumped ship. Oh, the yeah. That he is, right? Good riddance. Um, and this came right in the wake of Putin's call for flushing out the fifth columnists, the traders who would sell their mothers to have a seat in the hallway of one of these super elite uh, inbred families. And uh, Chubai has been there since the 80s as a Soros stooge, pushing privatizations, working with Rhodes scholars like Strobe Talbot, like Victoria Newland, breaking up Russia. Um, so he's gone now. He went to some resort in uh, Turkey. He's going to stay there. Um, Glaziev was also a figure in the financial community in the early 90s. He was actually a, a cabinet member, minister, under Boris Yeltsin. And he was the only person to resign from the Yeltsin cabinet uh, administration. And I think it was 92 or 93 in protest of what he saw coming on as oh, the yeah. rape and destruction of Russia. Um, so he's got fiber and he's he's published a lot over the past 30 years, uh, just mm. exposing the oligarchy, their operatives within Russia, within uh, the Western establishment and their ultimate agenda for depopulation. He's savvy. So in this long essay, I, I, I published this on the uh, Canadian Patriot uh, website. I'll, I guess I'll send you guys a link. You can include that uh, for the audience. Um, he starts off by just laying out the groundwork of history that got us to the present circumstances, which is what any competent thinker should do, get context. And he just goes through a little bit of the, the British intelligence and American industrial financiers behind Hitler. And uh, what happened with the break of the British, the British unipolar system, which was the only world government for a long time, until two other models arose after World War II um, in the form of the Soviet and American uh, systems that had been able to do something that the old encrusted British Empire system was not able to do. So he goes, he says, the emergence of social states in the USSR and the United States with centralized management systems made it possible to make a sharp leap in their economic development. In Europe, the corporate governance system was formed, unfortunately, according to the Nazi model in Germany, and also not with the help, not without, sorry, the help of British intelligence. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing, I, I, want to, yeah. I want to chime in real quick for those that don't yeah. know, Glaziev is a trained economist. Glaziev is half, if you want to use the modern day term Ukrainian, Glaziev's mom is Ukrainian, his father's Russian. This mm -hmm. is a guy who is a top mind in thinking. I mean, he's known especially not only for what he's done with the with, within the Yeltsin regime when he saw what was happening with the oligarchs, with the privatization, with the vulture capitalism that was planning to strip Russia down to the bone, but also his very famous book that he wrote in 1999. It, it was titled A Genocide. Russia and the New World Order, where he was talking specifically about what is happening with the depopulation that was occurring in, in Russia, the loss of family, the loss of rights, the loss of so many things that was happening. This is a brilliant man, folks. Pay attention. Go ahead, Maddie. Absolutely, yeah. And, uh, yeah, his grasp on the deeper universal history that shapes us is just great. His sense of what the real economy should be based upon is solid. Um I think that uh, that book you mentioned was published by uh, the EIR publishing in, in as far as the English version of that, which is yep. affiliated with 
uh, the late economist Lyndon LaRouche. Yeah. Um, and Glaziev has presented speeches at LaRouche or uh, conferences going back to the early 2000s. Um, there's a few of them online on YouTube still. Um, so he's been studying now some very high level thinking for some time is now putting it into action with political power, which is the key. So he's going through now the, the problem in Europe. He, he gets across the British intelligence uh, backing of uh, of uh, Nazism. And he says here, right there, Hitler, backed by British intelligence agencies and American capital, quickly deployed a centralized corporate governance system in Germany, which allowed the Third Reich to quickly take over all of Europe. With God's help, we defeated the German, or rather European, taking into account today's realities, fascism. After that, and I mean, here's the thing, too. I mean, people really need to understand that we never defeated the cause of World War II. World War II was never defeated in 1945. It was never fully won. It was a victory, but it was just a battle that was won. It was, if you look at the actual financiers, the, the Bank of England, the Bank of International Settlements, the Wall Street financiers who had poured countless millions into the coffers of the Nazis and also Mussolini. They were never punished in Nuremberg. George Bush's family made their fortune funding Hitler yep. with a lot of returns, never punished, right? The U.S. supplied the, the resources. Rockefeller Standard Oil supplied oil, petroleum, rubber, and other things, petrochemicals to the Nazi machine while World War II was occurring. Um, same thing for British financiers, Montague Norman. I mean, the, the, the entire Bank of England op apparatus, which is today trying to manage the reconstruction of the entire social fabric of society behind the Great Reset was... Matthew, behind. real quick, don't forget, yeah. don't forget about Prescott Bush and J.P. Morgan. Prescott Bush, yeah, Brown Brothers Harriman, Union Banking. Yep. He, got, he got fired, or he got uh, found guilty in 1941 for trading with the enemies after the U.S. was already in fighting Nazism. He was still doing business with them, and a commission found him guilty, and he, he was stripped of a lot of his assets, but they were all given back to him very very soon thereafter as a senator. Um, and that's exactly what the Bush family came out of, was an allegiance to this, this you know, very evil thing. So, yeah, he starts with this and, uh, and gets at how, okay, the entire wiring of the fabric of the OECD of Europe, of NATO after World War II was still built upon that, that type of corporate um, control model of, of Nazism that was always beholden to the Western financiers. So that's a problem. Um, uh, with, so he describes, okay, we put down that, that Frankenstein monster. That's great. Uh, but the Soviet and Western with the center in the United States after the collapse of, after the collapse of competition due to the fact that the directive management system was not flexible enough to meet the needs of technological progress, the United States for a while seized global dominance. Of course, here he's talking about because the entire speech or the, the interview, he's trying to get you to think about how do you resolve the need for uh, coherence and harmonization of many parts in a modern economy, right? There's 8 billion people. You need to have coordination, which means a certain form of, of centralization. But at the same time, not, how do you avoid the trap of having that, that type of harmonized central coordinating power? How do you avoid the trap of it becoming encrusted or fascist? or a stagnant such that it destroys innovation, creative thought, which is often what happens. And this is what happened with the Soviet Union, as he's describing, which was not flexible enough. It became all, all of the innovation was all top heavy. So it was, it was permitted, but it was only permitted in the form of military expenditures, military technologies to outpace 
to fight the Cold War. But none of that, those advances, which were incredibly advanced advances uh, or scientific breakthroughs, were trickling down, were benefiting the real economy so that you have cases in the 1980s of farmers of the Soviet Union uh, who are using obsolete tractors from the 1950s and 60s. Um, the industrial base was not benefiting by that type of innovation. So there was this schism, which resulted, as he says, in a breakdown. And the U.S. survived that, that type of uh, collapse. They had a more flexible system. And that became a unipolar ideology from 1992 onward, right? This end of history, there's no more competition in the world. There's just one hegemon. And all that's left for the for the world is to just pick up the pieces and put some parts back together. And that's it. There's nothing more to, to that's the end of history. So now he, he goes a little bit more in depth now into the, the characteristic of these hierarchical vertical structures, characteristic mm -hmm. of imperial world economic system uh, turned out to be too rigid to ensure continuous innovation processes and lost their comp comparative effectiveness in ensuring the growth of the world economy. So now he's going into the problem, the, the causes of today's collapse. How did the U.S. go from being the, the only kid on the block who finally won the, the, the great game to being now a basket case collapsing? What happened? And it's, it has to do with this, this inflexibility problem. On its periphery, a new world economic order has been formed based on flexible management models, a network or organization of production where the state works as an integrator combining the interests of various social groups around achieving one goal, raising public welfare. That is the basically pulling people out of poverty. Look at China, what they've done just in the past 20 years, they've pulled 800 a million out of poverty directly. Um, a lot more. I mean, this is an accelerating process. So that's the key. It's, a, it's, it's not like um, a goal, like let's go, let's go take the hill, like in Vietnam, right? Like that was a bad type of goal. Let's go take the hill. Take the hill. What do we do when we, get, we take the hill? You keep the hill. Okay, but what do we do after that? Eh. So that's a very vague, that's a bad goal. Um, it's too vague. Then there's the types of goals that are just, that have, that are kind of just like overly final, like the Great Reset, right? That's a bad goal. Like, what do we do? We, we, we put windmills and solar panels all over the world. Okay, then what do we do? Uh, then we have a utopia. It's like, well, won't there be a lot of problems and breakdown of, of civilizational productive bases if, if you just have everybody stuck on windmills and solar panels for their energy baskets? Eh, let's just get the job done. And we'll worry about that afterwards. That's a bad goal. You know, once you get there, if you if you ever do get there, you've killed the thing that you're trying to manage. So that's, that's a bad goal. Whereas the goal of uh, in raising public welfare, pulling people out of poverty, increasing standards of living, that's the type of goal that you see in the U.S. Constitution. Right. The idea that in order to form a more perfect union, you're going to have a society that will be based upon the general welfare um, of the whole, as well as the idea of the inalienable rights of the parts of each individual. But you that's a good whether it's 250 years ago, whether it's today, whether it's a thousand or a million years into the future, that standard is a universal constant. It is always going to be a proper metric upon which any society in any part of the earth or in the cosmos is going to be able to rely on and know that it's doing the right thing if that is improving. So <clears throat> this is where cultural relativists and people like moral relativists, they have, they freak out because they're like, Oh, the general welfare is such an abstract concept. What's good for you is bad for the other guy down the street. And it's like, well, 
Have you tried not, have you tried going without water for a few days? I guarantee you, <laughs> your access to water and improving your access to clean water is something which you value and everybody will always value regardless. Um, <laughs> there, there are universal constants of goodness and the means of, of acquiring that and improving that, uh, which it requires the minds of people to be developed because new technologies to are always needed to get better qualities of water um, and other things. So that requires the innovative breakthroughs of human creative thought. Um, without valuing that, everything else breaks down. So the most impressive, he goes on, he says, the most impressive example of such an integrated world economy today is China, which has been three times faster than the growth rate of the American economy for more than 30 years. Like as the U.S., you know, average growth rate is what, 2%, 3% on a, on a great year. If they're lucky, China's been blasting away at 6 to 9% on average for the most part of the past 30 years. At the moment, China already surpasses the United States in terms of output, exports of high-tech goods, and growth rates. So again, he's getting at the physical conditions that people have to start thinking about in a more realistic way. The, the physical conditions of what what are you producing what is the quality of your product is it high tech or is it like low quality is it sweatshop or is it uh cutting edge and what is the rate of the growth rate itself these are all factors that they don't teach in economics courses anymore but this is what glaziev um is saying that this is the future of economies thinking in these terms and um he goes on he describes here the role of the state the state seeks to maximize growth rates in order to combat poverty so you don't just do growth. He's always getting this question of why do you do things? What's the proper scientific and moral reason why an economic action occurs? Do you do growth because you want to have shareholder value maximize? Is that why you do growth? Do you want growth just to like maximize profits? No, you do it because ultimately you want to end poverty. You want to bring people to a, to a better place in life. So at the same time, it uses market mechanisms of competition. So he's like saying, yes, th th there's a quality of socialism in here, but it's not what you think. It's not like this, this radical idea of just state controls everything and people don't own anything and you'll be happy. That's a technocratic feudal socialism. It's not the same thing as he's talking about. So he's saying at the same time, it uses market mechanisms of competition, which makes it possible to ensure the highest concentration of resources for technological revolution in order to ensure economic leaps based on a new advanced technological order. If we look at the growth rate since 1995, the Chinese economy has grown tenfold, while the American economy has grown only 15%. So now we're getting into like different orders of magnitude, right? So on the surface, it seems like the American economy is in better shape than the Chinese, like per capita GDP or, or something. If you look at it just as a snapshot, okay, fine. You could say that the average... Uh, even that it's harder to say that nowadays, <laughs> the U S just lost two years on average of life that it had two years ago before the pandemic. Yep. But, but as a snapshot, you could still say, you can make an argument that the U S has more, uh, wealth than the, than the Chinese. However, when you look at the rate of growth of the Chinese model versus the Americans, the Americans, he's saying it's 15% in total since 1995. I would even say that it, that that's generous. It's probably lost a lot more than that in its real economy. Whereas China has increased in an order of magnitude tenfold its economy from what it was in 1995. That's huge. He goes on in that same area where he's talking about how in China, 
45% of its GDP is invested. It's reallocated into the real economy. Whereas in the US, it's only 20%. But of that 20%, it's far less because most of that is going into maintaining speculative bubbles on Wall Street and not towards the real economy. You're lucky if you get maybe one out of $5 of that's put into the real economy at all. Yep. Um, so that's huge as there. Russia's got the same problem, though. He says that Russia also only has about 20% of its GDP going towards the real economy. That has a lot to do with the fact that Russia suffered a lot more under the Western traders and liberalizers who created fifth columns in the 1990s that have kept a sort of control um, on the central bank of Russia that hasn't permitted it to behave like the robust state Chinese banks that have been able to accomplish so much more. Um, he also makes the point that China, 90% of all yuan created each year, 90% goes towards, quote, like as he calls it, feeding the contours of expanded production and ensuring ultra high tech growth. So they're able to build, for, again, they're at 40,000 kilometers of high speed rail, uh, record breaking, like Guinness Book of World Record breaking uh, tunneling systems, bridges, um, the, the most incredible reading of deserts, the moving of water from the south into the parched north, which soon will be going all the way up into the west of China uh, by 2050 with the great uh, Move South Water North project. They can do things that green deserts, and uh, these are things that we used to do, but we lost that capability because of the reasons that Glaziev goes through. Well, we're, we're, we are blazing trails when it comes to gender identity, my man. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't sleep on that. Okay, we're blazing trails on that. The fact that uh, that we have right now more uh, third, fourth, and fifth graders who can identify as being gender fluid is remarkable. It's an advancement and an achievement of Western civilization, Matthew. Absolutely. That's I, I forgot about that. That's our new NASA. <laughs> that is. It's a to boldly go where no uh, it he her them zin zam zim has gone before. <laughs> yeah. To, to explore strange, strange new worlds. <laughs> to explore strange <laughs> new, new genders. genders. <laughs> new non-binary configurations. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> now you got it, my friend. Yes. Yeah. And thanks to the metaverse, we don't need infrastructure anymore, Matt. Yeah, you can invent your own. Yeah, You don't have to find your own gender. You can now create your own gender on top right. of it in the metaverse. Correct. <laughs> yeah. create your own. Who needs high-speed rail when I have the metaverse? Absolutely. And derivative products. So many derivatives of derivatives of derivatives. It's wonderful the future we're getting into. Yeah, who needs to have food when I can like like real food where which involves like cleaning dishes and getting yeah. indigestion when I can like go to a an all-you-can-eat meta buffet in digital reality and just eat it as much as I want without ever getting full. Yep. I exactly. Mean, you know, you never really hear people talking about what actually happens to your real body, right? When you're just like sitting on your, <laughs> in your soil, <laughs> in, the, in the corner of your room on a mattress. You turn into Jabba the Hut. Yeah. <laughs> the American version, which is Pizza the Hut. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's disturbing. All right. So <laughs> let's get back to reality. So, okay. So Glaziev now, very clear. There's a reason why, again, he's really made it made the point not just to integrate the Eurasian Economic Union, but integrate it with China. And this is the, the driving force, increasingly obviously with Iran, uh, for the foundation for a new economy. He's also bringing in India in an interesting way here too. Uh, not in, I think that's in the next one. But he describes here 
an important nuance that people need to understand as well, that um, the fourth industrial revolution, because people often hear, oh, Russia has their own center for the fourth industrial revolution. You know, um, they're, they're obviously complicit in the Great Reset. That's a Great Reset ideology. And it's like, not really. The fourth industrial revolution was a concept that goes back to the 1960s. And it's a highly underdefined terminology. It's obviously, yes, been co-opted by the the great reset cybernetics crowd of Klaus Schwab. Yeah, they have a very specific ideology, a cultish religion for depopulation and transhumanism. So when they use the term fourth industrial revolution and the utilization of things like um, 3D printing, automation, machine learning, uh, the internet of things, you know, that, all of that will be used to the effect of controlling and automating people and controlling a highly reduced dumbed down populace. That's the case. However, are these technologies themselves intrinsically bad, right? Um, not at all, not at all. None of these technologies are bad. They all have their own practical usefulnesses if applied under a, a framework which actually values human life as something which is not measurable by purely monetary or uh, carbon emission calculations in a computer. If you actually have that sense that there's a transcendental value to human life when you man like manage your statecraft, all of these technologies, the idea of a fourth industrial revolution is simply the next phase of the application of modern technology to benefit human beings so that we don't have to do repetitive, low quality, cyclical tasks, you know, that a computer could easily do. So anyway, I just say that as an addendum here because people hear him talking about technology and they're like, oh, he sounds like Klaus Schwab. And it's like, no. No, there's a, way, a totally different paradigm utilizing these words, right? right that are exactly. very different. Matt, um, I want to I want to show something real quick. Yeah, do it. Do you want to stop share? You know, uh, yeah, I'll, 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 yeah, stop share real quick. I want to show you what the future of the United States is going to look like under the metaverse. Siege, are you ready for this one, Siege? Mitch, I'm ready. I know you're snacking on some popcorn. Don't choke on this one. I'm bro. enjoying it. Eating some popcorn. No, I'm no, just that. listen. I don't want you laughing and choking. We need you, okay? And Matt, brace yourself. I'm there, I'm there. This is America, the year 2040, okay? I'm going to show you what it's going to be like living in America. If we don't fix this country, this is where we're headed with the metaverse. Brace yourself. This is the opening scene from Ready Player One, okay? Here we go. Let me expand this. Here we go. This is your future, folks. Here we go. Everybody's living in pods. Are, are those like trailers? They're stacked trailers. Yeah. Oh. You see, look what, what everybody has in their faces when you're looking through the windows. I'm offended, B. My double wide sits, fits me fine. Are they all on meta? Oh, yeah, look at that. They're on meta first. <laughs> You've never seen this movie, Matthew? No. Dude, you gotta watch this movie. You gotta watch, you this gotta movie. watch it. <laughs> Everybody's on. Everybody's on Meta. This is America, bro. <laughs> we don't make shit. We have high-speed delivery pizza, Strip just like Neil Stevenson in the book Snow Crash. And this is what we are: the Metaverse. You think this boy's going to school? So that's the thing that's keeping the society from going full-blown Mad Max. Yes. This. This opium Metaverse thing that just pacifies people and keeps them happy. That's it. He was born in 2027. Drought, All right, I gotta watch this. Riots, 
I love this predictive programming. It's really something. Yeah. That was Steven Spielberg who did that, eh? Hey, yeah. notice the cars. No, no need for cars. No the need cars for cars, are, right? Done. No. The cars right. are totaled. They're done. Oh, yeah. They have engines. Oh. They're obsolete now. Then then he goes ahead. Oh, I'm having his decoy. Here he is. That solar flare. So I live here in Columbus, Ohio with my Aunt Alice. Columbus, Ohio. In 2045. That's his 2045. This is the fastest growing city on Earth. Fastest growing city on Earth. It's where Halliday and Morrow started gregarious games. Look. Oh, yeah. Now he's ready. These days, reality is a bummer. Wow, Everyone's that's depressing. Everyone's looking for a way to escape. And that's why Halliday, that's why he was such a hero to us. He showed us that we could go somewhere without going anywhere at all. You don't need a destination when you're running on an omnidirectional treadmill with quadraphonic pressure-sensitive underlay. <laughs> okay, all right. I, I, get I get it, I get it. You get it? I can't, I can't do That's it. That's our future. <laughs> yeah, and B, that was like five or six years ago, right? Yeah. That wasn't, yeah. That's yeah, not new. I, like, I feel like an old man. Uh, yeah, that, I, I avoided that one. Well, but I'm going to watch it. That's okay, because you read that. books and we watch movies. It's <laughs> fine. <laughs> <laughs> right, no, you learn a lot i mean you definitely you you get that's you you totally learn exactly how they're they're tr training the minds of the the next generation to to uh adapt to some something very unnatural um well you know Zelensky. um on a side note this guy i think has been doing a lot of metaverse too or taking <laughs> uh, in metaverse because well, we, uh, we, we, we've seen all the out. uh all the victories, right, of, of blowing up Russian helicopters. I mean, there's a lot of metaverse stuff going on in Ukraine right now, bro. Oh, yeah. He's he's being given some real interesting scripts. Uh, I don't know whether he – no, he can't believe them because he's not even in Ukraine, uh, even though the yeah. green screens would say the, the opposite half the time. Um, but he even just said that uh, the Europeans should uh, take this as an opportunity now to cut themselves off of, of, of natural gas yeah. forever. <laughs> he actually is like now now lecturing the Europeans morally oh, yeah. on uh, how wonderful of an opportunity this this war is that he still wants them to fight and even create a no fly zone over to risk World War Three to avoid genocide. He's um, he's getting his talking points from Schwab, who's sitting right next to him. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> no, it's so clear. I mean, they, they, ever since he was brought in, that Ukraine became like a guinea pig uh, basket case to put bring in digital IDs. They were the, like the first country, I think, yeah, they were. in Europe to do that. Yeah. Maybe in the world. I think maybe in the world. Um, and now, like, really just going hard on this idea that, no, you you should be willing to suffer and, like, freeze through, freeze to death in Europe uh, over all winters to come forever in order to have green, you know, windmills and solar solar panels and cut yourself off of Russian gas. However, if you want to pay for your Russian gas, don't pay the Russians, pay us. He actually said that. He said, you know what, because you, you got to, you know, realistically, um, you do have to pay the Russians, I guess, you or you think you do. So since you don't want to be sanctioned by the U.S., why don't you just create a company that we will own and you could pay us and we, we will promise to pay the Russians for the gas that you're paying us. And, uh, and he actually floated that idea as something that he thought wouldn't be laughed out of, out of the house. Um, it's brilliant. Really, really and, and he got that script. It's sad. He's got, he's getting all these scripts. Klaus gave him the first script. This thing about creating the, the secondary Ukrainian uh, gas company. I'll pay the, that's from Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden gave him that script. <laughs> real, real quick before we, you gotta be on drugs to, to believe that. Yeah. What was that before we jump too far ahead? No, uh, uh, Lex Friedman did an interview with uh, Zuckerberg, 
uh, podcast with him is probably I think it's like maybe like a week old and it's it's very telling in terms of the metaverse and what his vision is and well, what what they're creating and I think it's it, it aligns in regards to what the NWO and their their perception of is that you know you will own nothing and you will be happy and I think it I think it's it's timed in regards to that I think I think it's an important conversation to to listen to I'm halfway through it I was reluctant to to listen to it but I'm like you know what, I'm going to learn something from it, you know? And so mm -hmm. even though I don't like him, whatever I publish, listen, because he's plugged into that society. Is Lex himself a, a critical thinker in all this, or is he just trying to stay this neutral questioner? Lex will interview about anyone. He's very much uh, a, a, an intellect. I believe he is a nuclear engineer V. Is that right? By trait? Or, uh, I'm not sure. I think he's a physics something. Physics. Yeah. He, he's, yeah. he's, he's, he's very smart. He's also, a black, he's also a black belt in uh, jiu-jitsu um you know so you know he's definitely you know a sharp guy who's not afraid to press the envelope in terms of the conversations that that he wants to have with all different types of of, of okay. individuals and people yeah all right that's good to know all right that's worth checking out yeah i mean you know you, you've got uh definitely like this is the new opium um like just this is the if you want to get into the sense of how people like zuckerberg's handlers are are thinking right now in terms of how they're deploying this just think about how lord palmerston was thinking about the role and use of opium uh in the 19th century to specifically destroy the minds and morals and spirit of a whole people targeted specifically with it was then china but obviously it was beneficial to maintaining criminal uh syndicates and structures that were beholden to the british empire through fr freemasonic operations in india um and the brahmin caste systems it was that was what was producing the opium that was then being shipped from India to China. Um, it was being poured down their throats and again reinforcing the growth of early triads, early secret societies in China that were always beholden to the British, um, that were then feeding and creating um organized crime structures that even to this very day have continued to remain a problem, especially in Hong Kong, um, but also Macau. And also there's elements and remnants that have penetrated into the mainland, but a lot of that has been fought back. There's there's a fight going on, uh, though the Patriots on that point have at least uh, gotten the upper hand in a pretty good way, especially since they kicked out George Soros's uh, stooge, who we've, we've spoken about a lot and I've written about a lot, uh, Zhao Jiang from China, yep. or at least when they, they put him in prison in house <laughs> arrest for 15 years after he tried to stage a, a coup d'etat in 1989. So that was a big purge. Um, you know, in Russia too, right now, you got to purge. We mentioned that at the beginning. Uh, there's been several uh, leading figures who have recently been uh, fired yesterday. Uh, Putin signed an executive order um, calling for the ouster of uh, Sergei Rogov, uh, Andrei Kortinov, uh, Alexander Panov, all these people who are part of this. Uh, basically, they're, they're using the opportunity of the current Ukraine crisis, the military intervention to... to call for they were basically resistors calling for peace um yada 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 but these guys have been on the inside working with western liberalizers for a very long time undermining the ability for russia to be a sovereign nation so there's been an ouster of these guys from their positions at the as signed uh on the scientific council of the un security council uh for russia they've all been ousted so there there's i think many waves of this that we're going to see accelerating and accelerating and accelerating uh, china has been already on board doing that for a long time they've got their a few more things to uproot but still it's it's moving in the right direction there um which i guess brings us back to now glaziev who i think is behind a he's playing a, a sort of behind the scenes very important role in a lot of this um 
And again, since I've, I feel like we're going to hear even more and more about him in the coming uh, weeks and months ahead. Uh, this is might as well just keep on with with his interview. Yeah. I might not go through everything. I, I realize here I've got eight uh, excerpts. Maybe we don't want to go through all of them, but here I'll just this one here is um, I didn't read it yet, but he describes the financial crisis of 2008 was such a transitional moment when the life cycle of the outgoing technological order actually ended and the process of mass dis- redistribution of capital to a new technological order began, the core of which is a complex of nanobioengineering and information communication technologies. Um, All countries started pumping money into their economies. The simplest thing a modern state can do is to give all businesses access to cheap long-term money so that they can adopt new technologies, right? That used to be basic, simple common sense. Uh, don't don't make people think in terms of like next quarter or like maybe even next year. That's too that's too soon to really not just incubate new discoveries and new technologies, but then apply them to the productive process requires a, a type of practice that involves five to ten year, uh, you know, modes of thinking loans that are tied to um, repayments that might only start occurring in five or ten year cycles. So you have to have more patience than our current society is want to do. And he's very clear on that. Um, and that's the only way you overcome the limits to growth. That's a, the other, the other key thing is that the great reset world economic form crowd, they're, they're trying to manage society as if it is a computer model. Um, a computer model has certain demands. It like that there be a limit to growth. You cannot create something which is not already there in the inputs of the program of the model. So human beings our ability to discover new technologies, new things like fusion power, it's not forecastable in the linear equations in your model. So it, it doesn't exist and it cannot exist such that you could even validate killing or a, a scientists who are making discoveries or destroying, um, sabotaging their discoveries before they're ever able to benefit other human beings in order to justify the maintenance of a carrying capacity, a, a finite population limit. So Glaziev is clear, as are many of the intelligentsia of, of Asia, of India, that you always have to, to break free of that, you always have to outpace new discoveries with more and better discoveries. Um, that always, ha- you, you have to break the, the mathematical models. So, but if in America and Europe, such funds were spent mainly in financial bubbles and provided budget deficits, then in China, this huge monetary issue was completely directed to the growth of production and the development of new technologies. There were no financial bubbles, while the ultra-high monetization of the Chinese economy did not lead to inflation. The growth of the Chinese money uh, of the money supply was accompanied by an increase in the output of goods, the introduction of new advanced technologies, and an increase in the public welfare. That's the general welfare. So. The U.S. has poured how many trillions, guys? I don't even know. What's the number from from the start of the bailouts to the present? Like, how much money has been just like printed and poured into? We don't we don't exactly know because we got to remember there's 23 trillion. How many? 2.3 trillion went missing from the Pentagon. We had um, two and a half trillion uh, went missing to European banks. We have uh, f- uh, five trillion that was laundered in Afghanistan. We don't even know, man. It it's in the tune of. Actually, I I, I think it was. Uh, it, over from the war on terror to the financial collapse to now it's probably over 50 to 60 trillion easy easy 50 to 60 trillion easy meaningless it's like you think about it the american uh society of civil engineers put out a uh i think their last report was that the u.s desperately needs about 
a five trillion dollars of immediate investments to just get that collapsed decaying atrophied infrastructure to break even to yep. like safety standards yep um we could have done that and then so much more you could have had an integrated high-speed rail grid and maglev rail across the continent by now while also ending hunger in africa if you just deployed these things in no, such ways that would involve building real world See, uh, that's where you're wrong. Real wealth is created, Matthew, by taking 100% of every single dollar printed and applying that to the speculative economy that is known as the fire economy and allowing the fire to engulf us and kill us all. Right. You take your money and you let you burn it. You light it you on fire. Burn it <laughs> into the much. fire economy. Yeah. Finance, insurance, <laughs> and real estate. And let that speculation kill you. And then whatever's left over... You try to pay the interest rate, uh, interest rate on the money that you borrowed from the Federal Reserve. Right. Wonderful. Whereas China, 90% of every yuan created goes to what? The people and the benefit of the people. You know, the dirty commie bastards. <laughs> well, and these are people like, if you hear the, the sorts of idiocy of people who support this way of thinking, it's, insane, um, it's, it's it, like the, there are some idiot monetarists out there who will say, oh, a single mother who's lost her job. Um, and has a family to feed, we shouldn't give her, she's, you know, access to the dole or like, you know, a handout, or let's say she doesn't have health insurance. Um, she should just suffer because she's like not fit to survive. The strongest are the ones who are fit to survive. And that's just socialism or communism. If we start allowing for universal health care. And, and, you know, and that's um, the thing, man, it's not even th this concept that you, you know, you just mentioned in a nutshell, the thinking of these psychopaths, right? And what people don't realize, that is not even a classical American thinking. It's not. No. It is so anti-American. Completely. Pure Nazi fascist. And it's become masquerade. It's, it's all of a sudden masquerading as, as American. Yep. That, that was actually British. I mean, that's what the British were doing with their poor laws or the repeal of the poor laws um, in the 1840s. That involved the murder of millions of, of poor uh, I Irish who starved to death. As a matter of policy, because they were just too weak to uh, to be the dominant masters in the slave society, so they had to be scrubbed. You know, like that's that's really it. But then yeah. they'll justify bailing out, giving a giant welfare check of fifty trillion dollars to Wall Street speculators who offer zero real value to anything in the world, because somehow these <laughs> are the engines of economic progress and and liberty. Like, what the hell is that? Exactly. It, yeah. Well, v, I think you posted you posted the other day, V. I think it was on Twitter that it, it should come at no surprise that, like, if you look at the vast history of the United States, like the World War II, the the funding of the of the Nazis that happened in the United States, and it's it's no surprise that like history repeats itself, and we're literally doing the same thing again, funding the the Nazis in Ukraine. Well, yeah. That's that's what we do, CJ. That's what we do. That's what we always done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, I think I just screwed up. I couldn't. I lost my. Oh, there it is. Um, I figure maybe one more. Yeah, let's do one more slide. Then we'll just uh, yeah. stop it for today. Um, so he he's asked here, what do you? How do you see the world after the disappearance of the dollar monopoly? That's the mm, question. The this answers, is huge. Yeah, we are currently working on a draft international agreement on the introduction of a new world settlement currency, pegged to national currencies of the participating countries and to exchange traded goods that determine real values. Mm. So here's an interesting thought experiment, right? Because like, what will be the dominant currency? It's been so far the US dollar that's been the everyone has to have a treasure trove of US dollars to do any type of international uh, transactions. 
that's not going to be the case. So is it now going to be the ruble? Is it going to be the yuan? Is it going to be something else? Well, no. He says we don't need American and European banks because <clears throat> uh, it won't be any one currency. A new payment system based on modern digital technologies with a blockchain is developing in the world where banks are losing their importance. Mm. Classical capitalism based on private banks is a thing of the past. International law is being restored. All key international relations, including the issues of world currency circulation, are beginning to be formed on the basis of contracts. At the same time, the importance of national sovereignty is being restored because sovereign countries are coming to an agreement. Global economic cooperation is based on joint investments aiming, aimed at improving the well-being of peoples. Trade liberalization ceases to be a priority. National priorities are respected, and each state builds a system for protecting the internal market and its economic space that it considers necessary. In other words, the era of liberalized liberal globalization is over. Before our eyes, a new economic order is being formed an integral one in which some states and private banks lose their private monopoly on the issue of money, mm. on the use of military force, and so on. Very huge set of concepts um, in terms of how private banking, you know, are these have been the dominant structures controlling what nations are allowed to do for a very long time. He's now putting forth a completely different idea based upon how the new technological base that human beings will be now uh, operating within and upon quantum computing um, advanced nuclear science I mean Russia and China are going to be uh, running jointly a lunar uh, science facility by 2030 that's the current time frame uh, China is going to have the biggest most advanced modular um, space station with the heavenly palace very soon yeah. The uh, there's both they both have expressed a vast interest in developing mining capabilities on celestial bodies, starting with the moon, where there's a lot of helium three, but a lot of other things. This is where things like AI, machine learning, become something that doesn't we don't have to be afraid of. It's not like the Terminator coming to destroy human life. AI, from that standpoint, machine learning simply is that you can get a machine to learn from its mistakes. It doesn't mean that the machine is going to discover some qualitatively new discovery. Machines can't do that, but they can at least, based on their experience, they can not, they can, they do repetitive actions based on whatever logarithms and other, other program you put into it. But if something new is, is, a, it, you know, uh, strikes the machine as it's mining and, and encounters something it didn't expect, it can modify its, its uh, behavior to accommodate the new experience. That is useful because you don't want to have a lot of people mining the moon. Like that, that makes no sense. You don't want to have a lot of automation. Same thing for Mars, right? It takes like 14 minutes for a signal moving at light speed to travel to and from the earth to, the, to Mars. That's a lot of time that you don't want to waste when decisions need to be made on the spot. So having automated systems that can react to stimulation um, is vital without having a human being who has to go and send a program. Um, that trend, you know, moves across space for 15 minutes. It's, it's, it's stupid that way. Yeah. Um, he brings up the blockchain idea too, which I think is very uh, enticing and interesting. I'm just going to keep going here because it's just so important. Um, objectively, the ruble could become a reserve currency along with the yuan and rupee. It would be possible to switch to a multi-currency system based on national currencies, but you still need some equivalent for pricing. 
we are currently working on the concept of the exchange space of the world Eurasian Economic Union, where one of the tasks is to form new pricing criteria. That is, if we want metal prices to be formed not in London, but in Russia, just like oil prices, then this implies the emergence of some other currency, especially if we want to act not only within the Eurasian Economic Union, but in Eurasia in a broad sense, in the center of a new world economic order, to which I refer China, India, Indochina, Japan, Korea, and Iran. These are big countries that all have their own strong national interests. After the currency, uh, the current history of confiscation of dollar reserves, I don't think any country will want to use another uh, country's currency as yeah. a reserve currency. So that's smart. And that's then huge. the question becomes then, well, what is this basis? So he does talk about like special drawing, a form of uh, rehabilitated special drawing rights. He, mm -hmm. he does say that ultimately the IMF has is morally bankrupt. He used to think that we could reform the IMF. He's like, at this point, it's morally bankrupt. It's yeah. got to be just something new. Uh, the concept of special drawing rights, which currently are today abused very badly, he says it could be based on something like that, where there's some sort of agreed upon um, um, universal currency that's created that all of these different countries put their, their currencies into as a basket. But that is then tied to what he calls uh, measurable um, assets in terms of productive powers of metal of alloys, of uh, wheat, of um, of gold, of a variety of, he says about 20 different products of commodities um, would be involved in setting up a metric, an index. What about the 21st commodity, which is genders? Because we, <laughs> we would be a very strong currency if we, we did that. We would definitely win that war completely. Yeah, they, Russia would, would lose in a, in a jiffy. Yeah. <laughs> so the last thing here, I think he actually says that here. But gender? Yeah. So, yeah, he says, but why does the Central Bank of Russia, the Russian Federation, in your opinion, pursue a policy in the interests of the enemy? So he's talking about uh, Elvira Nabulina and the head, of the, the head of the Russian Central Bank, who's been yeah. playing a pretty nefarious role. And, and Glazyev has been keeping it safe. He, he literally says, I don't want to go into conspiracy theory. Uh, I don't think our deep state is, is, is that much of an issue as it is for the United States or Europe. But uh He's keeping it safe, let's just say. Um, and the interviewer is kind of getting pissed off. Not pissed off, but annoyed. He's like, I want you to like, you know, lay out the skeletons in the closet. Come on, tell me what you know. Right. He won't do it. So he's being cheeky. But as he says, um, he and he's referring here to the bank. The bank does this on the recommendation of the International Monetary Fund. But the bank's interests are also shared by our large banks, which objectively like this policy. So he's basically calling out all of Russia's large banks that are in on the same sort of self-sabotage as the Central Bank of Russia, um, as well as our current financial uh, currency and financial structures, which are also involved in manipulating the ruble exchange rate. Therefore, an influential lobby is formed around this policy, which supports this policy based on its private interests. These interests run counter to the interests of the country. They are directly opposite to them. And if you look at what the central bank is doing today, I have no doubt that it is continuing its policy of pandering to the enemy. It undermines macroeconomic stability by allowing international speculators to manipulate the ruble exchange rate and does not control the currency position of banks that, that have become currency speculators. Although the central bank could easily withdraw banks from the foreign uh, exchange market by fixing their currency positions. 
prohibiting banks from buying currency, and secondly, by raising the interest rate, the central bank actually, oh, and secondly, by raising the interest rate, which is what the central bank did to fight inflation, they raised the interest rate, which contracted the money supply. The central bank actually killed investments in the development of the Russian economy, which are very much needed right now, primarily for import substitution and restoring economic sovereignty. So again, like it, he's made it very clear that you need capital controls. You need to have a fixed exchange rate. Having this idea of a floating exchange rate, I mean, this is what allowed the U.S. to grow for 25 years after World War II uh, was right. having a fixed exchange rate. So you have a relative stability over prices and you could then plan out five or 10 or 20 years into the future because you know that speculators <clears throat> win is not going to be a determinant over what the value of the U.S. dollar is going to be next quarter, which could fluctuate immensely. And since it was floated in 1971, what we've seen instead has been an inability to think long term. Everything is subjected to, you know, uh, gambling and you've seen economic warfare so that people like George Soros, the new pirates in the modern age of globalization, have been able to be deployed on behalf of their masters to destroy currencies of nations that are getting a little bit too nationalistic, -y, like Malaysia, for example, which tried to protect its people from, well, Soros. Um, and in punishment, Malaysia and many of the Asian economies in the 90s were attacked. They're, they're, yeah. they're, they're speculated upon. Their, you know, their, their assets were, their, their, their money was bought up by speculators, sold uh, very, you know, en masse, their, their values dropped, their, their currencies plummeted, and their population suffered. So this is what's been going on in Russia. And there hasn't yet been the ability to do what Glaziev has been saying needs to be done for like 30 years, which is get control of this. Right. right? And make currency available, credit available for businesses, enterprises, so that they can not just only paint like maintain their bills and their overhead, but reinvest back into their productive process. Right, exactly, exactly right. And that's that's the key thing. This is what people are witnessing. We're witnessing not only a monumental change and a paradigm shift, mm -hmm. but we're also seeing a blueprint that has been in the works for decades being executed right before our eyes. And it's exciting to see this. Absolutely. Matthew Eric, thank you so much for joining us again today, my friend. Folks, get his book. All right, you got to go there, risingtidefoundation.net, risingtidefoundation.net, canadianpager.org, Matthew Eric over at Substack. Join, subscribe, and support this amazing work that Matthew's doing. And, and sign up, sign up. The, uh, you know, Matthew and his wife, Cynthia, always run amazing seminars and classes on Zoom. You know, go to canadianpager.org, risingtidefoundation.net, sign up and be a part of it. Thank you all for listening, and we have Gus Demas next. We're over and out. Thank you, Matthew. Bye, guys.